Oscar Combs here, and I want to put one rumor to rest, once and for all. The story is that Rafferty's goes all out for sports fans. And let me tell you, it's absolutely true. Confirmed. And fans love Rafferty's right back because the food is so terrific. Serve fresh. Serve fast. Serve friendly. Lunch or dinner. Rafferty's menu is jam-packed with all your favorites. Steaks, prime rib, chicken, ribs, delicious dishes and generous sizes that really satisfy the appetite. So come hang with the sports crowd at Rafferty's. It's the tastiest place in town. Welcome to episode 38 of Conversations with Oscar Combs, presented by Rafferty's. We've talked to Coach Joe B. Hall, but now it's time to hear from one of Coach Hall's assistants, Coach Jim Hatfield. A native of Knoxville, Coach Hatfield actually spent his elementary years in Lexington, attending Piccadome Elementary, but it may have been a visit from some Wildcat legends that solidified him as a fan of the Wildcats. Jim Hatfield's been everywhere in the southern part of the United States. Not only did his coaching career include stops in Florida and Alabama, but he also was an assistant at Birmingham Southern, an assistant at Kentucky, the head coach at Mississippi State, and the head coach at Southwest Louisiana State. Matter of fact, it was a Kentucky player from Louisiana that may have helped Jim land the Southwest Louisiana job. Also in part one of Oscar's conversation with Jim Hatfield, we'll get Jim's thoughts on some officials, how some of the rules affected college basketball, and an important, t- and an important tip when dealing with officials when calling a timeout. You're going to like Jim Hatfield and his stories, and you're going to enjoy his honesty about his coaching career, and then some. I'm Bo Robinson, and you're listening to Conversations with Oscar Combs, presented by Rafferty's, and his guest, Coach Jim Hatfield. Done a lot of good podcasts over the last year, but we've never had Jim Hatfield on here before. Jim, <laughs> this is a deal where we let it all hang out. You know, we don't have much on our head, but we have a little. And this is a time where you can say things you would like to said 30 years ago when you were coaching, but you were afraid of getting reprimanded by the SEC commissioner. So anybody you want to call out, you got the floor. Does that include newspaper writers who wrote well, it, it, lies that told in the newspaper? Yeah, because I've got, I've, got, <laughs> I've got a story about this now. I'm told once upon a time that you were dealing with a sports writer from Jackson, and you told him that you didn't think that they were fair to basketball programs in the SEC. All they were concerned about football. And I'm told this individual turned to you and said, well, Bear Bryant can walk on water. Can you? (laughs) And you jumped in a pool, and you weren't able to walk. You went down, and he jumped in after you. Is that correct or not? No, that's not. Those are (laughs) half-truths. We we only use half-truths in recruiting. (laughs) Seriously, did that happen? No. No, we we had numerous occasions during that time where you'd have uh, interaction with the press uh, when you disagreed with them. I don't know if you still do that or not. I don't know if the coach just walks away or not, but sometimes uh, uh, there was interaction uh, and not of a positive nature between the media and between a coach. I don't know how it is now, but uh, yes, that was true. 
there there was there was a time where the interaction between media and coaches were very very personable. Yes. Uh, where it was not unusual for a reporter at least once a week to be able to call and hey coach I'd like to come in and sit down and talk a few minutes. That's that's true and, and I've done that. Uh, uh, Marvin West in Knoxville, very good, and I enjoyed always visiting with with uh, uh, Marvin. There seemed to be a trust between the two up until the last 10 or 15 years. Yeah, that's probably true. Uh, you could say a lot of things to complete the story to a newspaper, basically the news, the uh, newspaper sports writers. Writer. That time. Yeah, beat, sports beat writers. writers. Yeah, you could say a lot of things at that time, and it gave them a, a, a better understanding from where you were coming from. And... Uh, I mean, they were on the plane with us or on the bus with us, and there was interaction there of a positive nature. And then it kind of turned. What caused it to turn, in your opinion? You know, I don't, I don't really know. I, I think uh, both coaches and media became very skeptical when an article might come out that <clears throat> a coach might consider unfavorable and might affect his recruiting and, uh, and then coaches would use those articles against that coach. So you begin to become more cautious about what you said because it wasn't just you and the newspaper writer anymore. It was your rival coaches who would use that stuff and try to hurt you in recruiting. There are some people who point back to the Watergate scandal as a time period when media started treating the people they cover differently, being more skeptical of them. And what you're talking about was in the early 80s, you know, before Watergate, mm-hmm. uh, and that some people think that the sports media started developing that same mentality of not being able to trust the people they cover. Well, it, it could be, you know, and you, Oscar, you'll remember that so many of your beat writers were also fans of the local team. That's where they grew up. They just became a sports writer in a town they grew up in, and for a covered a school that they they loved. And so there was not a lot of um, behind-the-scenes digging uh, at that time because the sports writer was a pretty good guy. And then it went to Are you insinuating they're not today? I don't know them today. (laughs) I've been out quite a while, but I read some negative articles or some questioning articles now uh, that you didn't used to read. Let's go back to... Your earlier days, you, you, you end up in Kentucky twice with the Kentucky basketball, early 70s and then in the mid-80s. But how does a guy that's born in Knoxville, Tennessee, end up in Kentucky? Well, I, I spent uh, – uh, my daddy was a Baptist preacher. So we moved uh, every two or three years, Tennessee and Kentucky. I lived in <clears throat> Middlesboro, Lexington, Warsaw, Kentucky, Murray, Kentucky, Camelsville, Kentucky. Uh, I've lived all over the state of Kentucky, and basically because my daddy was a, was a preacher. And I grew up uh, loving Kentucky basketball. As a elementary school student at Picadome, I remember being in gym class one day, and Frank Ramsey and Cliff Hagen walked in, and everything stopped. It was just like, here's God himself has walked into this Picadome Elementary School. Well, Frank was dating a school teacher, so they came over to say hello to her and all that, and we just happened to be there. So I grew up in awe of, of uh, 
Kentucky basketball. Uh, loved it. I, my daddy took me, uh, I don't know what year it was, uh, occasionally somebody in the congregation would have an extra ticket and give it to dad. So he and I were at the, Georgia, the uh, Kentucky-Georgia Tech game in the 50s when Georgia Tech broke Kentucky's home, home court running streak. Now, I'm going to tell you, you talk about silence. When that game ended, kid from Georgia Tech stole the ball, made it up, game over. It was total silence. You could have heard a pin drop. There was no, no applause, no hurrying for the exits. Everybody stood there in amazement that Kentucky had been beaten on the last – uh, steal in a basket. Memory serves me right. Georgia Tech beat Kentucky both times that year. Don't know. I, I don't know about that. I just know the game I saw at, uh, at Memorial Coliseum at that time. You graduated from Fulton High in Tennessee in '61. Played your freshman year at Tennessee. Transferred to East Tennessee State. What? How did that happen? Uh, well, I, I went to, to Tennessee under John Signs. John Signs was the head coach there. And uh, after my freshman year, uh, he resigned. And that's when the freshman didn't play varsity. You had a freshman team, and then you had a varsity team. So I played freshman ball there. And when he resigned, uh, they brought in Ray Mears. And Ray Mears brought in two junior college guards with him. Uh, so here I had – I was in a situation where the new coach brings in two junior college guards. There were uh, two starting guards on the varsity that were sophomores. And I was a freshman, so I was pretty far down the list. Uh, and I transferred up to East Tennessee State. And Oscar, it was a great experience. It's, a, it's really, I played for a great man in Madison Brooks. When I played, I didn't, you know, I was a bench warmer. I wasn't a superstar or anything like that. I was a bench warmer that loved basketball. Learning to become a coach a few years later. Yeah. Uh, I, I just loved it. I, uh, I think there is a tremendous value to team sports, but especially the team sport of basketball because of the interaction of everybody having to play defense, everybody having to play offense. You're all in there together uh, covering for each other and taking care of each other. It's a great team game. Your first uh, job in the college ranks, 70, 72, uh, assistant coach, chief recruiter, Birmingham Southern. Who was the coach there then? What was that like? Okay, well, that was <laughs> – Murray Arnold uh, was the head coach at Birmingham Who Southern. Who later coached at UAB? That's correct. All right, Murray <clears throat> was the high school coach that I followed when I coached high school ball. And then when he went to Birmingham Southern, he took me with him. And uh, so uh, Murray Arnold uh, was one of the sharpest basketball minds that I've ever been around. Uh, he could break down offenses and. Did he later coach different. at Mississippi State? He, uh, I brought Murray with me as my assistant okay. to Mississippi State. Yes. Okay. Uh, when I got the job at Mississippi State, I tried to. I said, "This poor fool needs some help." <laughs> <laughs> so I tried to hire as good a people as I could, and Murray Arnold was one of them. Uh, you spent a couple of years coaching high school in Orlando, Florida, Lyman High. That's where I started. Yes. And then you took a year off and. Went and got your master's degree at Montevello, Alabama. Well, I, I didn't actually – I was uh, coaching at Birmingham Southern. I didn't have to take a year off. Oh, okay. Uh, I was able to get it through night classes and summer school. I got my master's while I was coaching at Birmingham Southern. And then you had perhaps your greatest challenge ever. 
You went to a school that had a few violations, NCAA, death penalty, uh, southwest Louisiana, which I think now is Louisiana, Louisiana Lafayette. Yeah, actually, Oscar, what I did, I was at Birmingham Southern, and um, my dad and mother, they still lived here in Lexington. And there was a guy, an assistant coach at Florida State by the name of Bill Bolton. And Bill was an outstanding recruiter. And he became a friend. And uh, Bill said, Jim, I want to tell you, you're here at Birmingham Southern. And I'm going to tell you, if you want to advance in this profession, you need to get you an assistance job at one of the top programs in the country because that's where they hire the head coaches from. A president or an AD is not going to hire somebody from Birmingham Southern or somebody from a mid-major program, they're going to hire an assistant at a high major, even though he may not have ever called a timeout. But if they hire this guy from a high major program, then that president or AD can tell his fans, if it doesn't work out, he said, well, he had all the credentials and, and we hired him and, and we took a chance and it just didn't work. So that was the advice I got. Go get you an assistant. Well, I came to Kentucky when Coach Hall took the job. And that was in 72, and you actually went from Birmingham. Kentucky to South, southeast Louisiana. Yeah, I left Birmingham Southern and came to Kentucky, and this is, this is what happened. When he told me that, Coach Hall had gotten a job at Kentucky, and um, I, I worked Kentucky's uh, – Joe's – summer camp and I came to see him and 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 I I told him Joe I'd really love to to come and and be your assistant and recruit for you we had had success in recruiting at Birmingham Southern and uh, he said well Jim I I already got two assistants and Harry won't let me have but two so I got Dickie Parsons and Boyd Grant and um, I said Louisville they got three down the road but Harry ain't gonna let me have but two and I said Joe I'll come work for nothing I just want to come to Kentucky. My wife is a school teacher, and uh, she can teach school, and we can get by, and I can live in my mother and dad's house. And he said, well, I don't, I'm not going to encourage you, but uh, I do need some help recruiting, and if you want to do that, you're welcome to. So my first tenure at Kentucky, I came uh, on no salary and just proud as a Kentucky fan to be a part of Kentucky basketball. That's how I ended up here. Tell me a little bit about those three years you were here. We were very fortunate. The, uh, it was the first two years Joe had the job. And, uh, of course, uh, won the SEC. But recruiting was, was uh, what I was supposed to do. And we were fortunate. Uh, we were fortunate. Uh, people like Rick Roby brought Rick in. And, actually, that's how I got the Southwest Louisiana job is I was recruiting Rick Roby in New Orleans. That particular year, you had four big-time players to come in. Roby, Phillips, Givens, and Lee. Givens and Lee. Yeah, pretty good recruiting year. And um, <clears throat> But um, in the recruiting of Roby, uh, the Southwest Louisiana program was going through their problems. Uh, they had, were banned. They got the death penalty by the NCAA, a two-year no-compete penalty. Well, during the second year of that no-compete, that's when I was recruiting Roby. 
the athletic director at Southwest Louisiana was a young guy that was very aggressive, and he saw Roby as a way to restart the Southwest Louisiana program. So I came in contact with him through his recruiting of Roby and my recruiting of Roby at Kentucky. Well, long story short, we got Roby at Kentucky, and I got the job at Southwest Louisiana. Loved it. Joe, tell me a little bit about Joe and those first three years because he took over for Adolph, and not everybody in the state was on the same page on whether or not Adolph should retire. Of course, Singletary enforced the mandatory 70-year-old age rule of the Commonwealth. Uh, the, the, the first year, you won the title. If I remember correctly, it was the final game of the season against Tennessee. And fans over the last 15 or 20 years like to say that Kentucky fans have never stormed the court. But I remember that Tennessee game a little differently. I do too. <clears throat> they never sat down. They stood in their seats. And they carried and, him off the floor and at the end. And Grevy knocking those. There would be threes today. They weren't then. Grevy knocking down those perimeter shots. Uh, great game. Great game. How big was that looking back at it as far as Joe being able to survive the next year, which was really a down year, yeah. one loss-wise? Well, it was uh, – um, that win was a great win. But I, I don't think uh, internally, in-house – uh, there was not much doubt that Joe was going to succeed. I mean, you had your your other schools that would say, well, he's following Coach Rupp, and I faced this in recruiting, and he's he's going to have a tough time, and it's not a good time to go to Kentucky. And and But once you were able to present a total picture of the history, the 42 years of Rupp, the national championships, the uh, – the attendance. Look at the crowd you're going to play in front of. You want to go to Auburn and play in front of five, six hundred people. You know. So at that time, Kentucky and Vandy and Tennessee would would draw fans. The rest of the SEC might get a thousand spectators at a game, especially in a non-conference game. Of course, except when Kentucky came to town. Now they had packed that house out when Kentucky came to town. The the second year was the down year. What do you remember about that? And you were starting to get into the era where Ray Mears was starting to have an effect for Tennessee. True, true. Uh, Ray and Stu Aberdeen. <clears throat> and, uh, well, the uh, during that second year, I spent most of my time on the road. And uh, that was a, a recruiting period that uh, – Oscar, I remember I would I would go to uh, I had a little route I'd run I'd go to Washington leave Lexington, go to Washington D.C. see an afternoon practice, fly to New Orleans, see Roby, and fly to L.A. and see a game the next afternoon and be back. So I went from D.C. to New Orleans to L.A. and back in two days and saw three games with three kids. That became a regular deal. We didn't have a lot of the we didn't have any of those. Uh, contact rules so the NCAA has now. You can only see a kid could so many times. Could you pretty much go live with them? Yeah, oh, yeah. You could do whatever. I remember there was a uh, – was recruiting Tree Rollins who went to Clemson out of uh, Cordell, Georgia. And New Mexico had a young recruiter that rented an apartment in Cordell, Georgia and stayed there. 
Well, they didn't get him, but they made it tough for everybody else. 13-13 that year. Mm-hmm. Uh, up until the Eddie Certain era, you went through, I think Adolph had a 13-13, and that was the only two non-winning seasons. Was there a lot of pressure on that uh, – 74, that 74-75 team because now the Super Kittens were going to be seniors. Yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't feel that pressure. I think there was a lot more pressure, honestly, on coaches' wives, and and uh, out in the community. Yes, yeah. I remember my wife uh, would hear things at the grocery store, or uh, and her and Catherine Hall were very close, uh, and and. Uh, so they they developed uh, those two particularly developed a bond uh, because of the criticism and the, the things. But I, as a coach, uh, internally, we were pretty focused on what we need to do and able to ignore that. Uh, of course, it does affect you, but but uh, that that wasn't a factor uh, as far as uh, winning and losing or recruiting. So you go to. What is now Louisiana Lafayette, or what was then? Mm-hmm. Um, first year you're seven and nineteen, then you immediately leap up to twenty-one and eight and nineteen and eight. Take me through a little bit of what you had to fight and what you had to do to resurrect that program. Well, being a recruiter, I knew that that was the most important thing. And when I took that job, uh, I don't know if you recall. I was at Kentucky recruiting Roby. That was the second year of the death penalty that they received. Southwest Louisiana at that time was ranked third in the nation uh, and had seven kids go off that one team into the NBA. They're pretty good. That was the era of Southwest Louisiana. Uh, Western Kentucky had big uh, Jim McDaniels. Jacksonville had Artis Gilmore. Your your mid-major programs. Uh, but they who, were really considered major back then. No, they were mid-major then. Yeah, that right. They they are, their focus was on basketball. At the same time, the focus of a lot of SEC schools was on football. So that gave emergence to the westerns and the Southwest Louisianas and the Jacksonville. Which, other than Kentucky and Tennessee, and maybe Vandy, they were as good or better than the other SEC teams. Yeah, we we uh, yes, yeah. So I took that job. Uh, like I said, 127 recruiting violations, and the first year was great for me, Oscar, in that we didn't. I, I took the job, and we didn't have any players, didn't have any team, and it was the last year of the probation. So I was basically. Uh, Recruiting players, uh, wasn't coaching a team because we didn't play any games. I did things like I came to Kentucky and 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 watched them practice. I went to UCLA and and stayed there for two weeks with Coach Wooden. That was like a sabbatical for a young coach getting his start. Uh, Florida State, well, I respected Hugh Durham. I made a. I went to uh, uh, North Carolina. Eddie Fogler was assistant coach there and allowed me to come over. Uh, lefty was at Maryland. Dave Pritchett was the assistant. I was allowed to go there. So during that year where we didn't play at Southwest Louisiana, yet I was the head coach, was a tremendous learning experience for me that coaches don't have the opportunity to do. And uh, so I, I, I gained from it. 
you you turn that program around by the end of the third year, uh, your second year, you're a regular season champion, and by the third year, uh, Mississippi State's looking to uh, upgrade their program, and you go there. Yeah, um, I'll be honest with you now. I loved Southwest Louisiana and would have stayed there all my life. I loved the people there. It was a program where you could win. Uh, one of my former uh, assistants is now the head coach at Southwest Louisiana, and I still love it down there uh, because it's a, a, a great place to live and a great basketball place. But uh, at that time, Oscar, uh, Southwest Louisiana didn't pay very much. It was one of the schools that uh, there just wasn't Did that much money. Did you have to money. teach too or not? No, I didn't have to teach. Um, but, but it just didn't pay that much. And Mississippi State, uh, I was at the Final Four, and never will forget it, Final Four in Kansas City, um, or St. Louis. Uh, Final Four at St. Louis, and uh, I go back to my motel room, and I was a blinking light, you know, my <laughs> things. So I picked up and I got a message, and it was – Alan Jones, uh, assistant AD at Mississippi State. And uh, so I returned the call, and uh, he started the conversation, and, and we started visiting. And, and I remember saying, Alan, wait a minute. Where are we going with this conversation? I said, I am very happy at Southwest Louisiana. It's a great program. I love living there. And we got people like we, – we got some people going to play in the pros – on our team already, Andrew Tony, who spent ten years with the Seventy Sixers, and Cal Patrick Wells, and Dion Rainey, we had we had some good players. And he said, "Jim, I'm calling because I've talked to a lot of people, and they recommended I talk to you because we can pay you much more than you're making there." He said, "I know it's a good program, and I know you like it there." So I left Southwest Louisiana and took a job at Mississippi State, and more than doubled my salary. Um, what, I, what what kind of challenges did you anticipate when you took the job? And then how did they play out once you got there? What you perceive is what you got, or was it different than what you got? No, well, what and this is one of the pitfalls of, of coaching. You have to be careful. I took the job at Mississippi State, loved it. The AD that hired me, was fired after my first year there. And they brought in a new AD. Who was? Uh, Carl Maddox. Good guy. Carl Maddox was a good guy. I liked him. But that changed uh, the promises and commitments that were made to me. By the previous AD. By the previous AD. Uh, it, it just happens. It's nobody's fault. We had good teams. We had – we had. Uh, Let, let's talk a little bit about that first team. Nineteen uh, nine. Uh, you played Kentucky uh, six times in your career at Mississippi State. You slapped Joe B. around the very first time, and then he got you the next five. What happened? <laughs> oh, I'll tell you, I remember, I remember that game so well. I uh, remember it. I was sitting there at courtside. Uh, well, what I remember about it, I was elated that we had beaten Kentucky. If you remember, a close game, I had two big kids that were really good, Ricky Brown and Wiley Peck. And didn't Kentucky recruit Ricky Brown? Yeah, they did, but but they got in foul trouble. And we were up like five. This is the second half and about eight minutes to go, and we're up. And my two big guys were on the bench. 
and here they come. Let me so ask you, let me ask you just one question right quick. Uh, was Hootie Ingram the supervisor of officials at that time? Uh, who do, he may have been. He may have been. I'm not sure. There was, there was one game there, and I don't know. Uh, I know that Kentucky lost it. And I know a game or two before that, uh, Kentucky, Joe thought he'd got some bad calls, and Hootie made the uh, company line is, hey, there, there's a process, there's a policy. You send me the film, we'll look at it, then we'll talk to the fish and dot, dot. Well, this particular night, there were a couple rough calls down the stretch, and Mississippi State won. Now, yeah. again, I don't know where this is not, but I'm sitting – about the free throw line opposite the benches, and Hootie Ingram is sitting next to me. And the minute that game in, Joe makes a beeline to him. Was that the game? No, that wasn't that one, but Joe made a beeline well, to him. He the, made a beeline yeah. to him, and he said, Now, and he used a couple words that I won't repeat on here. But <laughs> you know, he said, You saw it. Now, what do you think? Well, send me film. I don't need to send you any film. And all of a sudden, Hootie explodes you want to go out back and settle this and i'm sitting there and like wow <laughs> and so uh hootie jumps up and you go down to the end of the court oh, yeah. go to the right for the yeah. visiting team yeah and you go around to the back and i jump run around there and i go i come up to a, a tv guy that's sitting there and i said hey you may want to film this he's what i said just turn your film on as joe comes <laughs> by in this guy and so Joe comes down, and Hootie comes down and says, let's go right back here. He says, let's go back here. And a couple of coaches grabbed Joe and pulled him away. And then we went into a little airy right at the end of the court, like a room. It's like the media room where the coaches come in and talk to the media. Right. And so when Joe come in, a couple of these guys asked him what happened. He said, well, you'll need to talk to Mr. Ingram. And so Hootie was standing in the back. And they start to talk, and Hootie denies anything was said. And I turn around to this guy, I said, did you get it? And he said, I don't know. <laughs> so a few minutes later, he starts going through his thing and recording back. I got it. <laughs> and it was headlines the next day. Okay. Yeah. Those were times that were obviously different. Uh, those were those were times, I mean, as you were talking, not that particular Kentucky game but the the first one if you recall we held the ball for the last five minutes of the game in a four point no game. shot clock no shot clock and i had a kid uh that you just couldn't take it from and it came down time for us to take our shot and we got the ball to ray white ray made a little penetrating move jumped up and stuck it in from the foul line and and we won the game but uh Rules were different then. You could do things different then. And, and coaches interacted different then. Well, let, let's talk a little bit about that, uh, being the rules. First of all, your overall assessment of your career, officiating. Officiating? Officiating. Ooh, that's tough. I uh, mean, overall, good, could have been better, could have been worse. Do you think there was ever any officials on the tape? Straight up. Yeah. Yeah, I think there were officials who were biased. Did somebody put money in their pocket? I don't know that. But I think there was definitely a bias among officials. Uh, were I, there personality clashes among certain coaches and certain referees? There were obviously some, yeah. Now, as I understand it, during most of your time, 
the league had a policy where you could they they like to call it for um kinder terms you could scratch two referees before each season that could not call your games during the season but they could in a tournament that's correct i don't know if it was two or not but yeah we had a scratch list we yeah. could scratch did did they have that throughout your career, or mm-hmm. was that changed before you got through coaching? No, I, I that was I, I scratched, I, I scratched, and uh, honestly, I only had one official who I felt like deliberately affected the outcome. Or tried to he didn't, but he tried to affect the outcome of the game. Was that in your opinion because he was incompetent, or because there was something personal? Well, he was incompetent, and it got personal. So, uh, you ever yeah, get a technical? I got very few technicals, but yes, I did. I got one. Uh, my technicals were not very many, so I do remember them. <laughs> so, so uh, there's some people say over the years that referees needs an extra pair of glasses. They need an extra pair of eyes. They need glasses go on, but. Well, Some it, officials can see quite a distance, like when you call timeout. You call timeout and make sure you include all five fingers <laughs> when you call timeout. <laughs> it might be, and, and they, it, can, they can see a long way when you don't use all yeah, five fingers. Well, yeah, they can. They pretty much. Want now, to, now, honestly, Jim, honestly, just where listeners now, can you stay with a straight face? That. You did that by accident, not using five fingers. Well, my hand got cramped on the okay. <laughs> as I moved okay. to signal for a time. Who was the referee? You got to tell he me. Was, uh, they, they ran him off the next year. I complained, and, and he was from Ohio, calling the SEC, and uh, not a very good official. So that was his last year. Now, whether or not my Incident caused it? Caused it or not, I don't know. But uh, And see, Oscar, you got to remember, at that time, officiating was not a full-time job. Those guys had regular they jobs. They weren't making 3500 a game. No, they made, they made so much per game, I mean, in the hundreds, plus their travel, and uh, uh, they had other jobs. Now, officials are, it's their full-time job, a lot of them. Well, most of them still, though, double back. But something, yeah. A lot of them takes a month, two months off for you 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 gotta you gotta give me names of at least two guys during your career you thought were really good solid professional officials always got the job done right. Give me two names. Boy, that's hard. You sound like Joe Bean. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no. surely, surely, guys, you uh, can remember two official like when I, you showed I, up at Kentucky. You know, I feel at least I'm not getting screwed mm, tonight. Yeah, there were some good officials. Obviously, I don't remember their names, but there were some good officials. Like we, I, you know, you coaches just won't give them a break. <laughs> no, they they were some good ones. And uh, okay, you know, Lou Bello. Lou was very entertaining. I had Lou several times, and uh, I thought Lou officiated really well when he officiated. But a lot of times during the game, I had him in one game where I look around, and there's one official on the floor, and Lou is over here hugging the cheerleaders, and the game is going on. <laughs> so that was a different era. I well, mean, that, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, what about uh, Ralph Stout? 
good official. He's a good old Tennessee boy. Oh, Ralph Stout was a good official. Dale Kelly. I like Dale Kelly. Good official. Charlie Vacca. Didn't have any experiences with Charlie. What about uh, Paul Galvan? Good official. I liked Paul. Um, Paul gave me a look one time. as was assistant at Kentucky and we was in the SEC tournament. And I said something I shouldn't have said as an assistant coach. And uh, actually what I did, somebody in the stands behind me said something to the official, and so I just repeated it to make sure he heard it. And uh, he, he gave me a pretty good look. And he stopped and looked like I'm going to tee up the bench. And Joe looked at me, and I thought, oh, I have really screwed up here. But he went on. He didn't call it technical. He just gave you that look that I've had enough. Don Rutledge. Oh, really good official. I like Don. See, you're, you're coming up with I mean, I just got to you got to refresh my memory, yeah. Good, good now, official. what about Don Ferguson? Didn't don't know Don. Don't oh no, know. come on! I know. I don't. I, he, 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 his regular day job was yeah. on soap operas. Yeah. <laughs> on Turner t- on WTBS. Yeah. Yeah, the daytime job. He was Don Juan. Mm-hmm. But um, I didn't. I didn't have him. Okay. Sonny Holmes. Now, surely you remember Sonny. No, I don't. Because Tell- among the coaches during the era he was there was known as if you ever went on the road. That's the first guy you wanted to see and the last guy you wanted to see at home because he was H-bent on showing that he was no homer. Yeah. yeah. That, not, not only him, but that, there were several like that. Uh, but uh, maybe I was naive, Oscar. I, I don't know. I remember I was a young guy as a head coach in the uh, 30s, and I, I, I didn't have a – an issue with officials. Uh, again, it may have been because of my youth. I, I don't know. But I, I didn't have a, an issue with them. I, they missed calls. I made, you know, mistakes myself. And my players made them. Nobody, the official's not going to call a perfect game. Get that in your mind right now. He ain't going to call a perfect game. And you as a coach, everything you call ain't going to work out either. So there is a... Uh, basketball, I heard somebody describe it one time, is a game of mistakes, the team that makes the fewest wins. What did uh, the addition of the third official make to the game? We thought it was awful. We thought it affected the game greatly. Uh, slowed it down, too much stoppage of play, uh, too many fouls. We just we thought it was uh, every – Every time there was an infraction, it was called when the infraction had nothing to do with the play itself. Uh, so a foul away from the play, you guys sort of let it be. Let it be. Let's play. Yeah. What did uh, what did the clock do to the game? Big like change. it or not like it? Uh, is that we, is that what is that a deal where the underdog it, is sort of favored? Well, the the clock uh, um, before the clock, and I, I learned this from uh, Murray Arnold, uh, the guy I worked with at Bremen Southern. Uh, he thought the teams ought to be allowed to do anything they could within the rules to win, and if it meant slowing the game down, holding the ball. Limiting possessions, that was okay. 
And as you know, I, I've done that. I held the ball against Kentucky for in the last eight minutes of the game, and, and, and I held it. Uh, and you didn't let you get ahead in the next six games. That's right. <laughs> you know, that was the only one I had against Kentucky was that one. Jo- and you didn't have to get the lead to be able to pull that off. Yeah, and, and uh, correct. And there was a guarding rule as to how close you had to be to be closely guarded. And, and um, uh, so it, it – uh, but with one or two dribble penetration, the count went off. And there was no longer a five-second count. Three-point shot. Good rule. Good rule. Uh, at the time, a lot of coaches felt like it distorted the game because most offenses, there were no offenses designed then to get a three-point shot. A guy coming off a down screen to the top of the circle and knocking it out like on your flex offense or something like that. But uh, uh, it was felt like it was a distortion um, and has been proven wrong. It's added greatly to the game. It's improved kids' shooting. Something you never, never dreamed about as recently as maybe 15 years ago, the, re- the uh, review of plays. I, I do away with it. It's awful. Uh, I would not uh, – I would recommend a – unless it has something to do with the clock itself. But uh, that's it. I, I'd eliminate those uh, official reviews and – Unless it's a clock issue. In the game and I don't care. No, no, let's play it. Let's play it. Uh, let's get back to That's the human your, element in the game, and the officials are part of it. Let's play. Let's get back to your career at uh, Mississippi State. Talk a little bit about your three years there and some of the players you had and the challenge. What, what were the challenge being in Starkville, competing in the SEC? Were there pluses as well as minuses or – well, the uh, when I took that job, I felt like that there were good players in the state of Mississippi. Now, one of the schools in the state of Mississippi, either Mississippi State or Ole Miss or Southern, one of those three majors, if you can get the best players in the state, you can compete in the SEC. So that was our objective. Let's get the best players in the state, and we'll be okay. And then we'd pick up one from Louisiana, pick up one from – wherever, you know, Texas. But uh, uh, at that time, you know, we um, I always broke down recruiting into three or four categories. One was local recruiting. You got to do it. Regional recruiting. You got to mark that region if it's the South, wherever. Nationally and internationally. And um, so those four areas, you've got to have a specific plan that differs in each of those areas to be successful in recruiting. In local recruiting, I don't mean just your city, but in your state and maybe the neighboring states I'm calling local, you daggone better get to know every single coach you can. Your coaches are a key in the overall recruiting. Not that in one specific player they're going to deliver to you, but you're going to be permitted to have a chance to recruit. Mom and dad are going to be there, but you're going to be – that's all you look for as a recruiter. You want a chance to recruit this kid. Mississippi a great deal like Alabama in as much as that you had two schools in each state in the SEC. Sonny Smith often said you, he beat Alabama to keep his job. He beat Kentucky to get a race. Was it that <laughs> way in Mississippi with Ole Miss? Uh, uh, Ole Miss, uh, okay. I think those rivalries, in-state rivalries, exist 
very strongly with fans. The coaches that are in and out of those schools four, five, six years, uh, they may get along with the coaches at the other school and not have that hatred, you know. Not like Kentucky and Louisville. You know, this will surprise you. Well, the first two years I was here with Joe and Denny was at Louisville. Uh, but you weren't playing each other then. We weren't playing each other, but uh, we'd go on. Uh, Jerry Jones was an assistant at Louisville. Uh, used to have a summer circuit. Mm-hmm. That would be Washington, D.C., uh, Philadelphia, New York, Boston. About a three-week circuit where we'd go to Harry Garfinkel's camp and uh, Bill Cronauer uh, was starting up at that time. Well, we went together. We, dro- we drove. But again, you weren't playing each other. No, we weren't playing each other, but I don't think – that's true. We probably wouldn't have been doing that if we was playing each other. But I think – one of my point is I think there was a lot more uh, getting along among coaches uh, than what I see here lately. Was it that way at Ole Miss? I mean, I, yeah, Wetlick and I did not have a problem. Bob Wetlick was the coach there. We didn't have a problem. Uh, of course, we were in a state where we both uh, understood that uh, uh, football was important at our schools. It seemed it seemed to me like back then too that in Mississippi, Southern Miss was pretty strong in both sports back then, and it was more like I thought Ole Miss and State sort of hung together. They just didn't want Southern Miss going wedging in between them. That's correct. You, you didn't want you didn't want. Uh, any new competition, you know. Let's yeah. let's keep them out of the game if we can. So so uh, you spent three years at Mississippi State. You had some big wins, and uh, how did that end up going? Well, we had a new AD came with in. the AD. Yeah. yeah, he he came in and uh, he made it clear right away. Uh, a good guy, but he made it clear right away he wanted his own people. Uh, and was he, it was that before, or did he later go to LSU? No, he went to LSU later. He okay. was from L- both. Yeah, he went from LSU to, to State back, back to LSU. That is correct. Yeah. And a good guy. Yeah. A really good guy. But uh, I didn't know him. And uh, when uh, uh, he came in, he knew he, he he wanted to be his football coach, his baseball coach, his basketball coach, because this guy's near retirement, been in athletics a long time, and had a history of – relationships with people he, he liked. Mm-hmm. So that was pretty obvious to me when he came in. He came in and uh, uh, we won. We were fortunate in that we won. But it was clear to me, the writing on the wall was, uh, it's time to look for another job. Uh, I'd only been there one year, but it was obvious to me it was time to start looking for another job because uh, this guy wants his own people. And that's not unusual. It just happens. Best place in Starkville, Mississippi to eat a dinner. You're talking about that barbecue place? Well, I, I'm just asking. <laughs> I'm just asking. Uh, okay. That has come on since I was there. There is a barbecue place there. That we used to go out to the Four Corners, the crossroads out there. There was then, a steakhouse out there somewhere that was pretty good, too. Yeah. yeah. They, those, But a lot of those are, are after I, I left. You know, we. What we, was it like living in Starkville? I liked it. Now you got to remember, you know, I, I grew up 
born on the farm in Tennessee and my granddaddy. So I wasn't a city guy. And um, I liked the people there. Uh, a nice place to live. Um, basketball had some respect there. And uh, I enjoyed it. I, I liked it. I, I thought at you Mississippi think if State. Old, if your old lady was there with you, you, my, would have, you would have stayed there longer? Oh, no question. My, my thought was, is when I went there, we had a good team. We had good players. Uh, and uh, uh, Kermit Davis had recruited some really good players. And wasn't he a native Mississippian? He played at Mississippi State. Yeah. And his son now coaches at Middle Tennessee. Right. He's been doing very well here. Very well. And, and uh, uh, if there ever was a job made for a man – Kermit Davis Jr. at Mississippi State is a match, and uh, that may never happen. And some some natural matings in coaching never seem to take place, but that would be a natural. Funniest thing that ever happened to you in Starkville, Mississippi? Jeez, I don't, I don't. The funniest thing that ever happened yeah. in Starkville, Mississippi? Well, jeez, I don't know what that would be. I don't, I don't, I don't, I can't recall anything. What's your best memory of Starkville, Mississippi, as a coach? As a coach, well, that first year, obviously, uh, we won. Uh, we went to the NIT when only I think you said two teams went to NCAA. Uh, things were going well, and uh, uh, I, I, uh, I didn't have a problem with Starkville, Mississippi. I liked it, and uh, maybe it's because of the way I was raised, but I enjoyed Starkville, Mississippi. Thanks for listening to Conversations with Oscar Combs, presented by Rafferty's. We'll have more with Jim Hadfield in Episode 39, but for now, you can go back and listen to some of the great interviews Oscar has conducted with some Wildcat greats. The easiest way to do that is go to oscarcombs.com. Also, for the Big Blue Nation on the go, you can access Oscar's podcast through iTunes and the Google Play Store. Just search for at Wildcat News and subscribe, and then you're guaranteed never to miss an episode of Conversations with Oscar Combs. To stay up to date with Oscar on all the happenings surrounding UK athletics, follow him on Twitter. He's at Wildcat News. I'm Bo Robinson, and again, thanks for listening to Conversations with Oscar Combs, presented by Rafferty's. And as always, go Big Blue.